0: Uh, my my heart has just been really troubled this week over a number of things. And um, I just could not focus on John this week, and so I changed uh, the sermon to Psalm 11 um, yesterday. So you just have to forgive uh, anything that wasn't as clearly worded or carefully thought out as maybe it normally might be. Um, But if you would, please, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 11. I'm going to read the whole Psalm, so verses 1 to 7. David writes... In the Lord I have taken refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin to consider it? Lord God, we thank you that your word counsels us in the dark, in the darkest of nights. We thank you for your spirit. Lord Jesus, you have promised that you gave the spirit to us who would be with us as a helper forever, that there will never be a time when we will be without the Holy Spirit. Comforting, guiding, applying, convicting, correcting, empowering. Or we pray for your grace to keep in step with the Spirit as those who have been made alive in the Spirit. We want to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. We want to be among the upright who will behold your face. What a glorious day that will be. When we behold your face, Lord, we, we pray together, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. You are our hope, Lord. And we wait for you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank God. Uh, very often because of the various circumstances that we will face in this world, we can find ourselves in situations where we're doubting our security in the Lord. At times, life circumstances seem to shake our sense of protection under the Lord's care and can even seem to challenge our confidence in God's wise and good purposes for our lives. Um, (laughs) You hear a quote from C.T. Studd, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And you you have to ask yourself, in challenging times especially, is what I'm doing truly for Christ and will it last? Um, Especially when it seems so easily to crumble (laughs) in certain circumstances. What's unfortunate is that it's in those moments where our great adversary finds his greatest opportunity to infiltrate and cause the most harm. To tempt us away from a strong and a resolute trust in the Lord towards doubt and despair. And and you, you know what trials. I'm speaking of trials that leave you feeling violated, trials that leave you feeling betrayed, trials in which you've felt taken advantage of and misrepresented, uh, left with nothing to do but to mourn a sense of loss that you're tempted can never be regained, that kind of trial, despair. In those times, we can, we can find ourselves asking questions like, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we start looking for some perceived mountain of safety or, or some refuge that we might flee away to. You know, things get hard. Circumstances get hard. And the only thing we can think of for how to deal with with the challenge is to run away, right? Grass is greener somewhere else. Leave our job for a better job. We move out of our neighborhoods for a better neighborhood. We leave our wives or husbands, not we. People leave their wives and husbands thinking that they might gain something better somewhere else. We leave our church family. We cut ourselves off from friends. See, it's it's in those times that the tempter aims to convince us that God is not trustworthy. That in the darkness of the night, when we can't see the light of his countenance shining upon us in that circumstance, that's when the tempter comes and says, You can't see the light of his countenance because he's not there. In Psalm 11, we find David being faced with a similar kind of temptation. And we don't know the particular circumstances that David was facing at this time, but they were bad enough that apparently his most trusted advisors were warning him that the only option for him was to flee away. You see that in, in verse 1, I don't have verses on the slides today, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't have time to get those together, but you look in your Bible, your copy of the scriptures at verse 1, where clearly David's counselors were telling him, flee away like a bird to your mountain, and, and seemingly they were counseling him to run away for good reason. Uh, look at verse 2. They, they even point out to David saying, this is part of the quote from his counselors. They point out to David, you, you need to flee away from this situation and find a place of ref- refuge for, look, the wicked are bending their bow against you. They've set their arrow upon the string already so that they might shoot at you from some secret place. From the hidden secret place to take advantage of you not knowing where they are, when they're coming, where they're coming from. The only option for you, David, is to flee away to your mountain of refuge. And you can even hear a sense of hopelessness and despair in the counsel that's in verse 3. Where these counselors tell him, look David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's as if the counselor himself is demoralized and simply resigned to the inevitability of a bad outcome if David doesn't find somewhere some mountain of safety to run to. Now, how often do we find ourselves with those same kinds of thoughts? Considering ourselves to be at the mercy of our circumstances and consigning ourselves to wade in the slough of despond. Maybe saying to ourselves, there's nothing that can be done. The wicked have destroyed the foundation on which the righteous would take their stand and the righteous can no longer do anything about it. Therefore, why not just leave? Why not just flee away like a bird to some mountain of refuge? Why seek to take a righteous stand where there's no foundation left for the righteous to stand upon? Well, the answer that David gives his counselors and that the Holy Spirit gives us in this psalm to those questions is simply this. The reason why fleeing away is not an option is because fleeing away is not the response of faith. True faith is not hopeless. And true faith does not give in to despair. True faith does not yield to the counsel of the enemy or his temptations that would come upon us to seek to cause us to doubt in the goodness and the wisdom of our God because of the circumstances we're facing. See, that's the tactic. Look around at your circumstances and see that the Lord is not your refuge. You must find some refuge to go. To which to go. True faith does not yield to that counsel of the enemy. Faith will always be counterintuitive to the natural thinking of the world. And so rather than asking ourselves in in difficult times, why not flee away from these challenging circumstances, what we should be asking ourselves during those times is, how should my faith respond to this challenging circumstance? There should be amens there. My own heart amens that anyway. I think we see that listed Depicted for us in a number of ways here in this psalm, I'm going to list out four general ways that we see faith responding to difficult trials here in the confession of David. So how should our faith respond to difficult trials? Well, first, the first thing we see in verse 1 is that faith counters despair by remembering where its true safety is found. Faith counters despair by remembering where its true safety is found. You notice in verse 1 how David begins to respond to his counselors. It's almost with a mindset of surprised disbelief that anyone would even be giving him this counsel, that he must flee away somewhere. He says to them, how can you say these things to my soul? How can you tell me I must flee away for refuge somewhere else? Don't you know that I have taken refuge in the Lord? Yahweh is my refuge. He is my fortress. He is the rock upon which I stand. He is my deliverer. He is my defender. He is my shield and my buckler. And when all the mountains of the world are shattering to pieces and slipping into the very heart of the sea, even then the Lord is my refuge and my strength. How can you say to my soul, Go find somewhere to go? I'm with the Lord. You see, the the hopelessness, the despair, the fear that would drive someone to tell David, you must flee away from the face of your enemy. To all of that, David says, in contradistinction to that, I've put my trust in the Lord. It's interesting, this word for take refuge or, or to trust in the Lord, if you have a new King James, it says... I've put my trust in the Lord. If you have an NASB, ESV, or, or maybe some other modern translation, it'll say, I've taken refuge in the Lord or something like that. What's interesting is that this word for take refuge, is it's, it's related to the idea of hiding oneself within a place of shelter. So if you, if you think of like Colossians 3, uh, I think it's 27, where it says those... Um, those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ, right? It's that, that picture of, of, of realizing and recognizing everything that Christ is for you and then going and hiding yourself in him as your place of refuge. That's, that's the picture here that David is presenting of his relationship with the Lord. The Lord is the one in whom he has hidden himself, And you can sense the contrast between what David says there and what his counselors are saying to him, right? Because his counselors are saying, you need to go find a place of refuge on that mountain, right? Go fly away like a little bird. And David responds back saying, I've already found my place of refuge. And it's with me wherever I go. My refuge is in the Lord. And what this is reflecting is a really strong conscientious, deliberate effort on the part of David to hide himself within Yahweh and to abandon himself to his care. And how many times do we find the Lord making promises in the Scriptures that He will guard those who put their trust in Him? He will protect them. He will defend them. He will fight for all who take refuge in Him, right? Psalm 18, verse 30, God is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. You take refuge in the Lord, the Lord promises you, I will be your shield, and nothing will get through me. Psalm 31, verse 19, oh, how great is your goodness, O Lord, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who take refuge in you. There's great and abundant goodness from God that He promises to pour out upon anyone who will take refuge in Him. Same concept, Psalm 2, right? Psalm 2, 12. Kiss the sun, talking about the anointed of Yahweh, the, the King who is reigning upon Mount Zion, the whole world and the kings of the earth and all the peoples together are exhorted by Yahweh. You better kiss the Son. You better do homage to the Son, lest His wrath be kindled quickly against you. But how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Same word there. How blessed are all those who, rather than rebelling against the reign of Messiah, actually bow the knee and hide under his sovereign rule. There's blessing there. See, what what we see in David here in verse 1 is that we begin to combat the forces of evil that would tempt us to lose heart in God. By remembering that no matter what we are facing and no matter what evil has come upon us, we have already taken refuge in the Lord. And this situation will be nothing other than an opportunity for the Lord to demonstrate His faithfulness. We've committed ourselves into His hand. We are believing God to be faithful to his promises, and in a sense, we are holding him to be faithful to those promises. Lord, you have said, and I have responded to what you've said. Please, come through for me. I'm expecting you to come through according to your promise. So the way we counter that temptation to despair and to lose heart and to find some perceived mountain of safety to which we might flee, the way we combat that is by preaching to our souls about the one in whom we've already taken refuge and reminding ourselves of his promises towards us. And just one thought here. the, The real insidious and destructive danger that was facing David in this temptation was not merely the threat of being shot by the arrows of the wicked from some secret dark place. That, that wasn't the greatest danger that David was facing. The greatest danger he was facing was embedded within this bad counsel that he was being given. Because the danger there is the danger, the risk of giving in to a fear that somehow his circumstances were bigger than God. That's the real danger. That's what we all must be on guard against and what we're all so tempted to fall prey to. My circumstances are beyond the power of God to deal with. That's all that despair is, by the way. That's all that hopelessness is for the Christian. All you are doing is bowing down to the lie of the world that says your God cannot help you. And the real risk was that David would give in to that fear, would begin to imbibe that lie, and then act in a manner that would betray his trust in the Lord. So from David, we learn that in every circumstance, we have laid ourselves down in the palm of Christ. We have entrusted ourselves to him and to his safekeeping. And no matter what happens and what may come upon us, we must be content to rest there and wait upon the Lord to deliver us according to his will and promise. So faith responds to challenging circumstances. Just tell them they should be here rather than calling you. Faith counters to despairing circumstances and the temptation to despair by remembering where true safety is found. Secondly, David shows us in the psalm that true faith settles itself on certain unchanging realities about God. True faith settles itself on certain unchanging realities about God. When our faith is disturbed, when we're tempted to doubt and despair, what should we do? We should settle ourselves on certain truths and realities about God. Verse 4, you see David recognizing that in the midst of whatever danger he was facing, in the midst of that, he recognized that his circumstances had not interrupted God's holy worship. And this is really significant and important for you to see. David's circumstances had not interrupted the holy worship of Yahweh. You see in verse 4, he says, God is still in his temple. What temple is that talking about? Any thoughts? I'm a little more free this morning. Feel free to interact with me. Sorry. Heart, Heart, Maybe. I think primarily what this is talking about is the Lord's temple in the heavens made without hands, the one that Hebrews speaks about because of its parallel to the Lord's throne being in heaven. Right? The Lord is in his temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So you got to get what David is communicating here to his counselors. Right? It's, this is a rebuke to them And this is a settling of his own heart in these truths. Where he says to them, you're telling me to flee away to my, my mountain. Don't you know God is still in his temple? Nothing has disturbed God so much as to get him to come out from his temple. God is still enveloped in holy worship of the saints in glory. The ragings of the enemy have not disrupted that. While the world is plotting and raging, while the evil and the wicked are scheming against the Lord and against His people, where is God? Where is Yahweh while the whole world is standing opposed to His saints? The Lord is in His temple. He's not disturbed. He's not wringing his hands, wondering what He's going to do. His name is not failing to be worshipped even when all wickedness of the world flourishes among men. No, David says the Lord is in His temple. God's worship continues. And and how can I, if if that's true, if God, if the Lord is still in His temple even in the midst of this circumstance, then, then how can I not worship Him in this circumstance? You understand, what I'm, you understand that? If, if my circumstances have not disrupted the worship of Yahweh in heaven, then how can I not worship the Lord in the midst of my circumstances? So that, that's, that's the picture, really, of, of the whole book of Revelation. Revelation was not a prophetic timetable. That we're to be reading in contrast to the or in connection with the newspaper, so that we can find out which events are being fulfilled. That's not the purpose for which Revelation was written. Revelation was written to give us a picture of what's happening in the spiritual realm as we face the the, the daunting task of living life for Christ's sake in this world. And what we see in the book of Revelation is that no matter what raging is happening down on earth, no matter what vile blasphemies are being uh, breathed out against the Lord, no matter what plots and schemes the enemy is, is, is using to wage war against the saints, it does not hinder the worship and glory of what is going on in heaven. Revelation 4 It opens up with that picture of God seated on His throne, sitting upon something that appears to be like a sea of glass. Just, just the presence of the Lord so undisturbed by the, by the things that were going on in the world. It's as if His throne is seated on water and there's not a pin drop upon the surface of that water disturbing anything in His presence. There, there's no ripple It's all calm. The Lord is in control. Even as the world rages, even as the wicked plot against God's people, God continues to rest in his holy temple made without hands. And Christian, the lamb, the lamb who's standing as though slain, our elder brother, has entered into that temple with him on our behalf. And what is he doing as he's reigning on the throne with his father, seated in his holy temple? What is the son doing for us? He's interceding. You know, intercession is a form of worship. What's the son doing right now in the presence of his father for our good? and for the glory of His Father. He's worshiping. He's pleading for the well-being of His people, and he's, He's interceding on their behalf that all things might be done according to the will of His Father. And so even while the saints on earth are surrounded by the wicked, God and the Lamb continue to be surrounded by the worship of the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all the heavenly host. And the myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of saints who have gone into glory before us. And who will ultimately be there in his presence. My point is, David's hope here is, is in the fact that the worship of the Lord has not been dampened by the scheming of wicked men. How then can we allow their scheming to check our own worship of his holy name? No matter what we're facing, like David, we must preach against the unsettled timidity of our souls that even in the face of our enemy, we need to be declaring to our souls, the Lord Yahweh is still in His holy temple, and even now I can worship Him. There's a second part to that these unchanging realities about God. In the midst of our circumstances, God's worship has not been hindered in the slightest. And in the midst of those same circumstances, verse 4, David says, neither have they halted God's sovereign rule in his life. Verse 4, David says, the Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You know, God's reign over the affairs of this world and over every single matter of my life will never be hindered by the conniving and scheming of ungodly men. God's sovereign reign over your life, working all things together for your good, will never be hindered by the scheming and the conniving of ungodly men. His throne is not challenged by their threats. His plan and purpose to orchestrate all things according to the counsel of his will continues to be unstoppable, for the plans of the nations will come to nothing, but it is the will and the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. You guys don't read your Bible enough. A quote from Scripture. The plans of the peoples. They will stumble, they will falter, they will come to nothing, but it's the counsel of Yahweh that will stand in the end. And so when the world points to us in our suffering or in our trials or in our situations and asks, where is your God now? Remember, uh, the same accusations being hurled at our Messiah, our Lord, on the cross. When Jesus is hanging there, they're saying, Where is God now? He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. When the world points its fingers at us and directs attention to our sufferings and accuses the God in whom we hope of being absent, not caring, being uninvolved, We can answer defiantly against all of those taunts by saying our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Beloved Christian, listen to me. Evil men may plot and scheme against you. All the world may join together to speak evil of your name, but but the bottom line is that none of it comes upon you apart from the sovereign permission of God and according to his sovereign purposes for you. His throne is in the heavens. There is nothing on earth that can deter what the throne in heaven seeks to do. You understand that? That's, you should rejoice in that. We should be happy in the fact that our God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Proverbs 16, you can't roll dice without the sovereign decree of God coming to bear upon how those dice land. A sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from your father knowing it. You could not take the winds of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea apart from the right hand of your God upholding you and guiding you. You could not make your bed in Sheol without, without being daily and moment by moment confronted with the very presence of God. There is nowhere you can go where God is not with you. And there's no, nothing that can come upon you in which God is not working His sovereign will for your good. That's where David's hope was. That the Lord's throne is in heaven. He's unassailable by his enemies. And by his sovereign power, he will even use the raging of his enemies and all their plotting and scheming to work good for David's soul. David didn't need to flee to A mountain for refuge like a little bird. The Lord was his refuge. And the Lord's sovereignty would work everything out for David's good. So that's number two. Remembering these unshakable realities of God. Settling our souls on that. That's a response of faith in the midst of challenging circumstances. Now third. We see beginning in verse 4 and into verse Verses 5 and 6, that David strengthens his faith in God by remembering what God is doing through those trials. So, faith responds in the midst of trials by remembering what God is doing through them. God is accomplishing something in us through the trials that He allows us to face. Do you believe that? Everything that comes upon you in your life, whether good, uh, enjoyable experience, or whether a trial, the Lord is using that to accomplish something good in your life. Verse 4, we we see that, that God, David declares, God sees Everything. There, there's, there's nothing in the plotting and the scheming of the wicked that has escaped his notice. Yes, they might be hidden in the secret place so that they might fire arrows at the upright from the darkness, the cover of darkness. But, but God even sees that. To, to the Lord, darkness is as light with him. He sees right through it. The Lord sees everything. And David says, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, verse 5. See, through trials, God is testing the righteous. That's what David is reminding himself of here as he's facing this trial. Now, to test something has different senses. It has multiple senses to it. When you're talking about testing something, you could be saying, I'm going to test this in order to examine its genuineness. Uh, to to see its purity. Uh, the, The trials of the Lord do that in the lives of His people. They test the genuineness of their faith. They bring out of them that which is true of them. But to test something also means that God is using the trials that we face in order to strengthen what is genuine in us. Not just to prove What is genuine, not just to to bring what is genuine out, but then to strengthen that which is genuine within us. Like, Like refining silver in a furnace, right? You you heat that silver silver up so that it can be purified, the dross can be burned up to brought up to the surface, scraped off, that silver hardens, and it's stronger and purer than it was than when you began. That's what the Lord does with the righteous when they face various trials in their lives. And David is reminding himself of that very fact as he's contemplating how to respond to this difficult situation he's facing. That through this trial, the Lord is is testing me. And I want to be faithful in the midst of the test. Probably the most difficult part of the Lord's work of testing us is communicated in verse 4. It's actually interesting because this part, in my opinion, what this, what this is saying, this is actually what gives the wicked liberty and boldness to continue working unrighteousness. But it's the very thing that becomes the greatest challenge for the Christian whenever we're walking through trials. You see in verse 4, it says, after saying that the Lord beholds, his eyes behold everything, David then confesses His eyelids test the sons of men. His eyelids test the sons of men. That's interesting, right? Do you guys feel like you're being more deeply examined right now with my eyelids shut? You could, yeah, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) My eyes are closed. I can't see what you're doing. I have no idea what's going on. You look at me and you think, Oh, he's not watching. What could I get away with? Rick? <laughs> it's the eyelids, David says, the eyelids of the Lord that test men. Wait, what is meant by that? I've wrestled with that for a number of years, actually. And what I've, what I've come to conclude is that I, I think what David is saying here And and I'm holding this loosely, but it makes sense. I think what David is saying here is that it's when the eyes of the Lord appear to be shut that the sons of men are being tested the most. It's when the eyes of the Lord appear to be shut that the sons of men are being tested the most. The Lord sees everything. But there are deep and dark nights of the soul where you and I look up to God and it appears to us as though His eyes are completely shut to our circumstances. He doesn't see. He doesn't know. I believe that those are the most challenging times for us to face. When we look up to the Lord and it seems as though He has shut His eyes upon us and He's not paying attention. Now, it's always at those times when we must remember as believers and we must declare the reality of it to our souls that the Lord sees in those times. And the Lord knows in those times. And the Lord has not forsaken me or abandoned me in those times. He's testing me in those times. Will I hold true to Him? You remember Isaiah 50 verse 10. This is one of my my bedrock verses. The bedrock verses of my life. Who is the servant of the Lord who walks in darkness and sees no light? Let him continue to trust in the Lord and to rely upon the name of his God. Who is my servant who's walking about as though there's no light and no countenance of Yahweh shining upon him? He can't see the path in the darkness. He feels abandoned by the Lord. Who among you of my servants is in that situation? The Lord says, you keep trusting in the Lord and you keep relying upon my name. That's what the Lord wants from us in the dark night of the soul. He has not abandoned us. He's not taking His eyes off of us. He may appear as though His eyelids are shut to us, but in that moment, what is the Lord requiring of us? To continue trusting, no matter what. My circumstances have not undone His promises. God will be be faithful in the end, and I will see that. That was Job's hope, right? With, with my own eyes, I will see the glory of the day of resurrection. In the midst of his suffering, he confessed that. Now that has a, a different side to it as well, though, right? Because when the eyes of the Lord appear to be shut to the sons of men, some of the sons of men are among the upright. Others of the sons of men are among the whom, uh, among, among who the wicked. And what do we find over and over again throughout the scriptures in relation to the wicked and their belief that God does not know, that the Lord does not see? It only emboldens them in their wickedness. And in in that way, even the trials that we face at the hands of wicked men are trials that are testing the wicked also. So David not only remembers that God is testing the righteous through his trial, he's, he's testing him in the midst of that trial, but he also reminds himself of what God's doing to the wicked through that trial. You see in verse 4, his eyelids test the sons of men. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that those who are proven through those tests to be wicked and to love violence, it says that the Lord hates them. And He will one day rain coals upon them. Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now I'm not going to bow to modern evangelical sentiment here and tell you that it doesn't actually mean that God hates the wicked when it says here that God hates the wicked. God does have absolute, perfect, holy, righteous hatred towards every single sinner that does not conform to His perfect righteousness. That's what hell is. You understand? That's what the lake of fire is all about. It's about the exacting of vengeance from Yahweh upon every creature who bears His image that does not conform to that image. When the Lord allows the wicked to walk through this life and He's testing them by making them believe that He's not watching, that no one is seeing what's going on. You know what robbers do. It's in the darkness that they break into homes. And they never break into a home where they feel like someone's watching them. That's the picture here. God's eyelids are shut and he leaves them appearing to be shut before the eyes of the wicked to test the wicked and draw out of the ungodly that which is actually in them. You understand. You've heard this before. You understand that you have every bit as much evil in yourself as a fallen creature, apart from being redeemed. You have every ounce of evil in yourself to make you the next Stalin. You get that. All it takes is the Lord handing you over to it. And you will become it. When the Lord makes the wicked feel as though they're safe in their wickedness, that's when He's testing them. And how patient God is With the wicked who plot and scheme against him and his people. How much kindness does God show to the wicked in this life? Sending upon them rains, giving them food, causing joy to rise up in their hearts. Right, right? I mean, that's a blessing from the Lord according to Acts 14. I believe that that the Lord gives joy to them in various parts of the, of the experiences they have in life, like that God gives them the blessing of happiness at times. That is a, that's a gift from God. But despite all that goodness that the Lord shows them in this life, if that kindness from the Lord does not lead them to repentance, then the very gifts expressing that kindness toward them will become the means of heaping judgment upon them. Like the Amorites, right? Genesis 14, verse 16. God gave them, from the time of Abraham, God gave them 400 more years of patience. And yet in the midst of all of that, what were the Amorites doing? They were filling up the full measure of their sin so that when the moment of God's patience ran, when the time for God's patience ran out, the Lord sent vengeance upon them. It's the same picture with the bowls of wrath in Revelation 15.7. There's a time coming when the Lord will hand over to divine angels these bowls that are full of the wrath of God. They're, they're coming out from His temple. What, what are those bowls doing in the temple of the Lord prior to them being handed over to these angels? Those bowls are being filled up with the wrath of God against ungodly men upon the earth. The time's coming when the Lord will pour out upon all of those who have been proven to be wicked. The Lord will pour out upon them coals and fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. All of this is is imagery. But it's... See, the thing about imagery, it's, it's, it's metaphor. But the thing about metaphor is that what the metaphor is being used to describe the the actual thing that's being described by metaphor is far worse than the metaphor being used so you imagine having Coals, burning coals heaped upon you. You imagine what it is to have a burning, scorching wind blasting you. You imagine what it is to have the Lord pour out upon you brimstone in judgment and judgment and, 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 and in righteous anger against you. Whatever you can imagine in relation to that, it is infinitely worse. Now, I'll tell you, I. I believe the worst punishment that the wicked will face on the day of judgment, particularly the wicked who have oppressed the people of God, the worst judgment that they will face on that day is is the judgment of seeing Christ bring his despised, rejected people before those who had persecuted them and force their persecutors to bow down before them. I didn't make that up. That's Revelation 3, verse 9. What the Lord says to the church in Philadelphia, I will make your oppressors, those of the synagogue of Satan, I will make them come before you and I will make them bow down to you and I will make them know that I have loved you. I think that will be the worst form of judgment that those who have oppressed God's people will face in the day of judgment. You know, Jesus even talked about those who believed they were doing the will of God in persecuting his disciples. What a wake-up call that will be for some of them on that day. So that's the third thing. David strengthens his faith in the Lord by remembering that God is accomplishing something through this trial, both in me and in the wicked. And ultimately, at the end, the Lord will make all things right. Now, there's a a fourth thing I want to point out here, and it's in verse 7. Um, I don't mean to just ramble up here, guys. I'm sorry if that's your experience this morning, but let's close on this. I I want you to see three encouragements that David declares in verse 7. So... David ends in verse 7 in this psalm by declaring three encouragements to his own soul. Three three things that will strengthen his soul to endure through the midst of this trial. Whatever it is. Number one, he declares to his soul the reality of the Lord's nature. An encouragement about the nature of the Lord. He says in verse 7, the Lord is righteous. And oh, when you and I are providentially allowed to suffer under the hand of the wicked or under the instigation of the evil one, there is nothing that we must cling to more tightly than the reality that God's character remains untaintedly righteous. That in all His dealings with us, all of them are governed by His righteous and holy character. And you know, that's the first avenue that the remaining sinful nature within us is tempted to go whenever we experience suffering in this world. We begin immediately to accuse the Lord as the one who sent that suffering upon us, as if it was from some devious uh, element in his nature, some something about him that, that he's against us and he doesn't love us and he's not acting righteously towards us. That's immediately where we're tempted to go when we experience suffering and persecution in this life. But David here in the midst of his trial is declaring to his own soul, no, in the midst of it all, the Lord is righteous. And I'm going to declare it from the mountaintops. There is no unrighteousness in Him. He's reminding himself that there's no unrighteousness in the Lord when the Lord deals with him. No matter what. We must, we must, in times of trial and suffering, we must cast ourselves entirely upon the truth of Psalm 145, verse 17, that the Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. That everything the Lord orders for my life was ordered by a hand of kindness and a hand of love and a hand of righteousness. And no matter how painful it might be, it is for a righteous end. Therefore, we embrace it and endure through the midst of the trial, knowing and holding fast to the reality that the Lord is righteous in it all. Secondly, David encourages his faith by remembering what is pleasing to the Lord. So as he's walking through a trial instigated by wicked men, he not only remembers that the Lord is righteous no matter what happens, he then reminds himself about what is pleasing to the Lord as he walks through that circumstance, what would be pleasing to God as I face this trial? David says, The Lord loves righteous deeds. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, or He loves righteousness. So when we're walking through a trial, what does the Lord expect from us as His people? To despair? To grow hopeless in what's happening to us? to lose heart and lose faith in the Lord. No, that's not what the Lord wants from us. What the Lord calls us to remember is that He is righteous and even in the midst of that circumstance, He takes pleasure when we walk according to righteousness. It's pleasing in His sight when we suffer unjustly in this world for the sake of righteousness. Isn't that the, the message of 1 Peter? It's a gracious thing in the Lord's sight when you suffer unjustly in the name of Christ. Now it's important to see that there. The Lord is not taking pleasure in our suffering. He's not taking pleasure in our pain. He's not even taking pleasure in the struggle itself. What He's taking pleasure in is our struggling as we walk through that trial are fighting, are laboring to behold the glory of God in the midst of it all, right? Violently seeking to take hold of the kingdom of heaven even when we feel like all the gates of hell are arrayed against us. All the armies of the enemy are crashing down upon us. Even in the midst of that, what does the Lord want from us? He wants us to stand in righteousness and keep doing righteousness as that which is pleasing in His sight. That's the Christian's ambition, 2 Corinthians 5.19, it is our ambition to be pleasing to Him. No matter what, whether in life or in death, Paul says. The Lord, and you need, to, you need to know this, that when you're walking through a dark night of the soul and you're struggling, you need to believe that the Lord is pleased with you for Christ's sake. When you stand for righteousness and keep doing that which is pleasing in His sight, He takes pleasure in that. It's not in your righteousness that you're earning before Him. We cannot cannot earn grace and salvation from God. But it's when we have a sincere conscience, a clean conscience in our walk with the Lord, and we keep trying to maintain sincerity of faith with him in the midst of trials, the Lord takes great delight in that. Right? I mean, Psalm 145. uh, No, 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 no. That's Psalm 147, 10 and 11. The Lord takes no delight in the strength of the horse nor in the leg of a man, but his delight is in those who fear him and in those who hope for his steadfast love. So that's number two. The third encouragement, and really the crowning encouragement that David preaches to his soul, is remembering the reward of the righteous. Remembering the reward of the righteous. So remembering that the Lord is righteous. Remembering what the Lord is pleased with. He's pleased in righteousness. And then remembering the reward that is coming to the righteous. David ends this psalm by saying, The upright will behold Yahweh's face. Now, I know, just listen as we end here, please. It does not matter how bad things may get on this side of eternity. There will be a time when every single righteous sufferer will revel in the unmitigated joy of the Lord's presence. Psalm 17, verses 14 and 15, there's an inheritance to the ungodly of the world. They're giving riches, they're giving children, they're giving lives of ease. That is their portion. It's in this life. But then in verse 15, David says, But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That's the hope of the Christian. That's what we long for and that's what we wait for. We wait for the time when we will behold the face of God clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ made fit to stand in the presence of God and to behold His glory and to revel before Him and to worship with uplifted hands and holy hearts. We long for that day as Christians and David says to his own soul, that day's coming. I'm going to behold His face at the end of all of this. And we must say to our own souls as we walk through these trials very much like that. That's what I'm walking towards. That's what I'm going for. If you're a Christian here today, if you are one who has true faith in God through our Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone, then this is your new birthright in Christ. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ who redeemed you from every single one of your lawless deeds. Everything that would cause you to be cast out from the presence of the Holy One, Jesus has dealt with that in His blood on the cross. Jesus took your sins, your offenses against God into the grave with Him and when He rose again from the dead, He did not bring those sins out with Him. He buried them forever. He absolved them in the depths of the seas of God's holy wrath that was against you. Jesus has absolved your sins through His own suffering and blood under the wrath of His Father. And when He rose again from the dead on your behalf, He rose that you too might be born again to a living hope. To an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. An inheritance that's being kept for you in heaven. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed on the last day. That's what we're waiting for. And that's your inheritance, Christian. That's what Christ has purchased for you. A salvation that culminates in what has been called in church history the beatific vision. The vision of glory. The vision of beauty. The vision of God's magnificence. If you haven't had that desire sparked in your heart right now, you're not going to desire the magnificent display of God's glory then. That day though, Christians clothed in the righteousness of Christ and made perfect and fit to stand in His presence and strengthened by the grace of His Spirit to behold the Father face to face. That is yours, Christian. And there are no circumstances in this life that can strip that away from you. Nothing. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. All you who are upright in heart, those of you who hold fast to the testimony of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who walk with God according to His will with a clean conscience, who keep in step with the Spirit and continue fighting the good fight of faith in the midst of the trial, all of you will see the face of God one day. And when that moment comes, Some of our brothers and sisters have already experienced that. Those whom we knew and worshipped with here for years, they've already gone on to the reward. When that moment comes for you, all the lingering shadows of this world will pass away forever. And there will be no more straining with the eyes of faith to look through a glass dimly. You, You won't need any longer to stir up your faith in God in the midst of spiritual oppression and darkness. There will be no more struggling to understand what God in His sovereign will is doing in your life. In that moment, you will see clearer than you've ever seen before how everything that the Lord did in your life, was leading to this moment. This great, final good for your soul of being with God forever and reveling in His glory. So that's when we see Him face to face. And that's when shadow time is over. Right? That's, that's, that's when our faith has been made sight. And, and then and only then will we finally know that nothing of all that the Lord has done in our lives was ever done in vain? Ezekiel 14.21 It all had a purpose. It all had a design to protect you, to test you, to try you, to strengthen your faith, and to usher you home into the glory of His presence. And so no matter what circumstances we're facing, we can always stand in defiance against every temptation to doubt and despair. And we can say with David in Psalm 42.5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you so disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise Him for the help of His countenance no matter how dark it gets, we always have that hope. We will yet again praise the Lord for His countenance. The upright will behold His face. Amen? Amen. Let's, Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would bless Your people. Strengthen us in our trials, help us endure for your glory, help us rejoice in you with all our hearts, Lord, and fill us with your spirit now as we close with this final hymn. Let us join our hearts together as one. Let us join our voices together as one and lift up a a resounding sound of praise for the glory of your name and the hope that is ours in Christ. Please help us, Lord. We pray you'd be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here a benediction from Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Endure, Christian. That's the glory that awaits you. Amen. You go in the peace of Christ's name.